It's been three years since the devastating Grenfell Tower fire in London. The incident continues to put the spotlight on the widespread use of unsafe building materials, specifically flammable cladding. Governments across the world are introducing measures to ensure that buildings are safe from fires, including replacing the facades of buildings that are deemed at risk. In the courts, meanwhile, ongoing cases are deciding who should foot the bill. Our guests today give us the lowdown on what's involved for apartment owners and commercial building owners in decladding and recladding their buildings and how they can go about recovering the costs of what can be a very expensive exercise. This is the Perspectives Podcast and I'm Rebecca Kent. Right. Hello, podcast listeners. We're talking cladding in this episode of the Perspectives Podcast and we're tripling up on insights with our guests. We've got David Bannerman, who's Principal at Bannerman's Lawyers. Hi, David. Thanks for having us, Rebecca. Dwayne Loder, a Project Director at JLL. Great to be here. And Leif Golder, Operations Director in JLL's Residential Management Team. Hello, Leif. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So, David, it's been three years since the Grenfell Tower fire in London, uh, which in Australia triggered some new legislation and in some cases government funds to eliminate cladding on buildings that is deemed a fire risk. Uh, what's the latest on this front? Melbourne's leading the charge because they've been dealing with a, a significant fire event that happened before the Grenfell Tower two years prior. And interestingly, they've managed to wrap it in with the COVID response as well. They've offered $600 million to owners to fund the replacement of the cladding and to deal with issues arising from COVID, they've quadrupled that now to try and create that as a bit of an economic stimulus package. There's been lots of um, reform throughout New South Wales in response to that, although New South Wales doesn't have a rescue package like the Victorians do. The, um, the UK uh, responded from the £200 million rescue package to increase that to a billion pound rescue package. So. I think eventually New South Wales will have to consider a bit of a rescue package like other places in the world, other parts of Australia. Uh, New South Wales has been responding with creating a lot of rights for disaffected owners to recover through litigation or other means from the people who caused their loss. There were some big changes made there on the 10th of June, some huge retrospective rights for owners to sue people, giving them a 10-year period within which if they've suffered losses, they could go back 10 years and start suing the people who are accountable. And is one state's approach better than the other, do you think? There's different solutions for different problems. I think the fact that the Victorian government is offering money to people to take the cladding off the building has to be a superior solution to any solution which requires somebody to try and recover the money from someone else. But I think that New South Wales has got the superior recovery rights if you had to go and get the, the money off somebody else. So new legislation is paving the way for court action as building owners are looking to recover the costs of replacing uh, flammable cladding. You're proceeding with a Supreme Court hearing currently on behalf of some owners. Can you tell us about that? It's the usual scenario of an owner's corporation suffering financial losses and then they um, seek to reimburse those losses relying on the statute warranties from the builder and the developer. And there's a hearing to determine liability for the losses associated to the cladding. So uh, there was an earlier case in New South Wales, which went on appeal, it was in the tribunal, and they found that cladding, that brown sort of, um, what looks like wood, but it's called biowood, um, on the external facade, and that was used on a strata building in New South Wales. And they 
were awarded um, the cost to rectify that cladding, i.e. to get that cladding off and replace it with something more suitable that wasn't combustible. And so that one was on appeal. There's a significant sums involved though with cladding cases. It's not often unsurprising to see that you know, if you've got cladding and it's on your building, it's, it might be $80,000 per lot to fix that cladding. So it can be a significant sum. Dwayne, what is combustible cladding and why is it even used on buildings? Um, I'll, I'll start with why it's used on buildings. It's, the, um, it's most often the external skin of a building. Um, it can be used decoratively. Uh, it's, it's a weather seal to keep water out. And then to an extent, it's the thermal and acoustic insulation as well. So um, it's widely used um, and has been, uh, there are some products that are, are composite materials that are compliant, others that aren't. Um, it's a composite material, it's made up of um, an outer layer of a metal most commonly aluminium, maybe zinc or copper, and then an internal layer that includes a material called polyurethane. The polyurethane that's inside is very flammable. So if there's a fire point where it starts, it just spreads very rapidly up the building. So the risk of where the fire starts is where there's a potential ignition point. I think there has been a case where a cigarette butt or an ashtray that caught fire um, was the ignition point for a whole facade to catch fire, and also potentially a barbecue. Um, there's one other type of product around, an expanded polystyrene um, that's been used internally for insulation. Um, that's often well inside the outside skin of the building. And that's also a big problem that's been in the industry. Roughly how many buildings are considered non-compliant across Australia? Uh, it, changing all the time as I think audits are continuing. Um, the state government cladding task force have numbers, some numbers on their website. Um, thousands of buildings are being audited. Uh, I understand over 400 buildings have got a problem in New South Wales, um, 300 in Victoria, um, fewer in the other states. Um, and some of those buildings have a bigger problem than, than others. Progressively as well, the, the owners, particularly commercial owners, are, are starting to get ahead of, say, residential. So of those buildings that are identified, the industry is starting to pick up and, and start to remove the cladding off a lot of the buildings. A good point that uh, is raised there, commercial uh, owners of, of large schemes, they're more motivated to comply earlier because if they've got a non-compliant building, their tenants, their commercial tenants could break the lease because the building is unsafe. Whereas in the residential schemes, they uh, generally have to self-fund and it can take a lot longer to get that process through. And you're dealing with multiple owners. That's right, yeah, the Strata Schemes Management Act, you could have 300 lot owners, um, there's a lot of emotional involvement. Um, they may even look at bringing new bylaws through that protect balconies from use of cigarette butts coming off balconies, being thrown from balconies, uh, stopping the use of barbecues on balconies to protect um, lot owners. Even though those balconies may be sp uh, sprinkler protected uh, in, in the event of a fire in a balcony, it's still regarded uh, by the insurer um, as, as a non-compliant building. And um, some of the owners' corporations are faced at the moment where there may only be one insurer left in the country who is willing to insure them. And um, they're getting to a stage where if, they, if the cladding's not removed, they're given an ultimatum by the insurer. Uh, if it's not removed by a certain date, then they're forced to take their insurance offshore and that would go overseas it could be a bucket of up to 25 or more insurers 
accepting the risk. And um, there's a lot of implications on strata committees even having protection um, as an office bearer. So there's lots of things and outcomes that are, that are being brought to the surface at the moment with this uh, situation. But now that since Grenfell, the industry has been driven by the insurer. So the insurance industry is now at the forefront of the removal of cladding. Um, in particular, uh, some of the residential schemes who have taken their time. So in those schemes, they're producing reports. It's a very costly process having their experts come in, perform testing of the cladding, and that's usually done through an expert like the CSIRO, third party independent uh, organisation, very reputable by contractor consultancy firm will put that report together. And then the owners corporation would develop a, uh, a way to present a case and then hand that through to a legal body. Dwayne, just explain to us what's the whole process in identifying uh, non-compliant cladding Sure. Um, well, there's a, a couple of different products with different degrees of the polyurethane inside them. So the, the first thing to do is to undertake a test to see how much, um, how flammable the polyurethane is on the product that's on your building. So obtain a sample of the building, um, send it to an accredited lab and have it tested and backed up with a report from a qualified fire engineer. That'll, that'll determine whether the material is flammable. Um, I think it, if you find out that it is, check your annual fire safety certificate and then start looking at some of those interim measures to reduce the risk while you're in occupation. If it is combustible as well, then you, you need to look at a way of solving it to make sure that you end up with a compliant building. And, and that's where I get involved in the process. Um, I manage teams of consultants and contractors to help owners and represent owners to try and remove the, address the problem. Because the facade system provides thermal, acoustic, uh, and waterproofing um, features to a building, you need to make sure that when the new compliant product goes up, that all of those aspects of the building are protected. So it involves a small team of consultants to help make sure that the right system is specified to go back up on your building. Typically then we will prepare a contract with, with some lawyers to make sure that the, um, the builder will behave during the construction period and we undertake a tender on behalf of the owners to find the most cost-effective, best way of accessing the building without affecting your uh, operation or occupation. Uh, and then we manage the builder through that process, ultimately getting certification of the, of the building at completion. And Leif, you know, you manage the operations of a building that are undergoing these rectification works. Give us some insight into how disruptive it can be. Um. It's very disruptive. Uh, for example, in buildings where it's fully surrounded by cladding, it would literally put the building as a construction site, possibly for more than 16 months. So you can imagine living in an apartment, um, there's, there's now a, a full scaffold around the building or around sections of the building with um, uh, the, the mesh. So you've, you, you, you can't look out of your balcony um, and it can be quite uh, stressful. We've had some owners asking us, uh, look, can we, can we move out? What should we do? But typically, um, because it's not, uh, unless the building is structurally affected, the building would remain occupied during that process. Um, if the buildings have the sliding louvers, those louvers may need to be uh, removed during that process. There's lots of things which needs to be very carefully taken into consideration for, from the project manager's perspective from compliance and just making sure that the residents 
uh, rights to a peaceful strata community are uh, at least listened to. You know, we were saying earlier the challenge for commercial buildings is that a tenant may have grounds to break a lease if they find the cladding on the, the building they occupy is non-compliant. In a residential building, some of the implications are the resale value of an apartment or getting uh, loans to fund some of the works if they find they have to pay out, right? Yes, that's right. Yes, we've seen in these schemes uh, the valuation of these apartments typically drop by the cost of the, uh, the the unit entitlement cost per lot. Purchases of those buildings, they try to then drive that price even further down. We've seen where schemes uh, and owners, lot owners are trying to uh, refinance or take a line of credit against their equity. Their loan to value ratio is affected or they're essentially being blacklisted to, to some extent financially. They can't borrow or they can't, some funders won't uh, fund that particular property. Uh, so it's really a very stressful process for uh, owners in these schemes. David, there are class actions pending in Australia at the moment against the suppliers and manufacturers of Aluka Bond and Vitrabond panels. Uh, apartment owners through their respective owners' corporations are seeking damages there. But that aside, what practical steps can affected owners take to recover the costs of replacing non-compliant cladding? The first thing you want to do is work out whether you've still got a statutory warranty right because that's your best right in New South Wales. But if you miss it by one day, <clears throat> what I mean by miss it, if you don't lodge your court action within the exact period of time that's allowed, those statutory warranty rights are lost. And then what you're left with is the new right that the government has created, which is this duty of care, which is akin to a negligence action of the second owners. But the problem with the backdated negligence action is that the builder and developer can say, look, I'm only 10% liable and you've got to sue these others for the other 80 or 90%. Now, that adds multiple parties to the proceedings, exponentially costs more for the, of the proceedings, and takes it uh, a lot longer to run through the courts. Now, the remedies may be available, uh, and you've got more defences. So at the moment, with the statute warranty scheme, you've got this fitness for purpose, and it doesn't matter whether or not it's the way everyone was doing it, or they read the code mark, or didn't apply properly. You know, those things that fit in the, what everyone was doing as a peer professional was sensible. But the statute warranty regime is higher. So if you've got your statute warranty rights, rights, rely on those. If you don't, well, then you're going to have to look at your duty of care options, which aren't as great as your rights under the statute warranties. Also, just to mention, uh, Rebecca, the, once the owners understand that they do need to replace the cladding, they then need to look at what type of product, whether it be another aluminium composite product or if it's to be the solid aluminium, which is some of the industry is uh, taking that, uh, that pathway. Once cladding is uh, either being investigated or being removed, we've seen in some schemes where the sarking, which is the aluminium framework holding the cladding in place, has also been deemed um, in the installation against the manufacturer's warranty. So those owners corporations are facing a second problem that the, the sarking, the system that's holding the cladding in place, may not be compliant or it may not be um, appropriate for the new material to go on because it's a much heavier weight. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a whole other cost that adds to, uh, to the projects that, uh, that Dwayne would head up. It will obviously take a long time to litigate and recover money um, off a, a potential um, uh, builder. But for a very for a low cost, um, the early stages of a facade rectification can be commenced. So you can engage those qualified engineers 
and consultants to help understand the extent of the problem uh, and tender it. So that 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 process of um, understanding the extent of it um, could help with um, claims because at least you can quantify the cost of rectification um, for future claims. So I, I wonder, David, do you have a view about um, whether you start the process of claiming off a builder or um, and, and wait until you um, start engaging consultants to try and rectify the problem or think you should start early? I think from a health and safety point of view, you need to uh, investigate to determine the level of risk and then you need to work out what your rights are to get somebody else to pay to make the building compliant. And then from there, seek to negotiate to get the, the building addressed in a safe manner. And responsible builders and developers are coming to the scene without having to take court action against them in relation to that, like the big end of town guys. But then there isn't that many who are that willing to come back and do it without litigation in the thrust of them. And so litigation is often just the catalyst for the leverage to extract a settlement. And the sooner that you get those processes in play, then the sooner you can make the building safe. Thank you very much, David, Leif and Dwayne. Uh, appreciate all your insights. Talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Rebecca. That was the Perspectives podcast. Thank you for listening to what I hope was a useful and interesting episode. If it was either of those things, do hit the share button and send this on to someone who you think might also like a listen. If you'd like to get in touch with Dwayne, Leif or David, pop over to jll.com.au forward slash perspectives dash podcast and drop them a line via our podcast page. I'm Rebecca Kent. Catch you next time.